Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. I want to see science serve a useful purpose to improve the standard of living for all people. Why is anyone fighting food advance? A very small percentage of the world's population is fortunate enough to have the luxury of turning down food. We've arranged a society based on science and technology. There was nobody understands anything about science and technology. You can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. You're listening to Talking Biotech, a weekly podcast illuminating issues in agricultural and medical biotechnology. Your questions and concerns are addressed using a science-based approach with the goal of driving discovery to application with communication. Now here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulton. Hi everybody, it's uh, me, Kevin Fulta. It's uh, episode, I don't know now, we're getting the double digits of Talking Biotech and getting a lot of really wonderful feedback and really good numbers. I'm surprised at how many people actually listen and I really do appreciate that you do. And obviously you're telling friends and telling others and I'm glad there's something of value here for you because it's something I care very deeply about and something my colleagues and others do as well. And it's uh, great that we could be in this communication space with you. So today's uh, podcast is really important because it talks about the way science is being interpreted in ways it does not deserve. So I'll show you a very good paper that was uh, interpreted and spun as a failure by activist literature. And I'll show you a paper that really did not deserve to be treated as the gigantic success breakthrough that it is. So we'll talk about that today. Now as scientists, many of us publish our findings and we use this gold standard of the peer review process to evaluate and improve our work. And this is how it works. So you, you write your paper, write your manuscript, you make it look beautiful, give it a nice halo so it has everything correct. And you send it to a journal where an editor receives the paper and usually reads it at least gets a good idea of it, and then identifies experts in the field that may find your work of interest and are qualified to review and judge and criticize your work. And it's usually somebody who shares your line of inquiry and may be interested in reading your work, or it could be somebody who's competing with your laboratory and somebody who maybe holds a different opinion than your conclusions and interpretations may hold. And those people are asked to either accept or decline or accept maybe with some revision. And good journals these days are declining a lot of work. Um, Somewhere between 50 and 80% are declined on the first go around. And really what this rate reflects is the rigor of the review process. 
I know that I've seen in my you know 25 year career in science this process has gotten increasingly more difficult and it's a good thing I mean uh, it's hard to get a paper published unless it has very strong scientific rigor at least getting it published in a very good place so really good high-impact journals they demand complete studies meaning that all the necessary tests have been done that you have outstanding data from many replicates and many uh, different lines of inquiry be they genetic biochemical whatever number of lines that support the same conclusion and that there's no loose ends on those studies and those go to places like cell um, and plants plant cell uh, some of our higher tier journals now other times we simply don't have the money to do the complete study so we do as many experiments as we can and then publish those in a smaller journal and say at the end here are the open ends that need to be tested and what we'll do next and then we use that uh, platform to identify more interest maybe find collaborators maybe go out and find a grant to answer the question completely now there's other times that we get results that they're just not exciting they were careful experiments, uh, maybe an undergraduate's work, um, but work that still needs to be reported. And we do publish those too, just to lower end journals because we don't want to duplicate efforts. We don't want someone else to try, the, try this experiment again when really there's nothing to be found. So journal articles happen on many different levels and not all are the same. Now today, there's this new trend of what they call predatory publishing journals. And these are journals that will take your money and pretty much publish everything and as good scientists we tend to stay away from those journals and they're well known and if you look up predatory publishers you'll find a list of those uh, public publishers who have very mild review processes if any at all and uh, accept money to publish the work now what makes a good journal easily distinguished from a bad journal? Well this is done with impact factor and it's one way that you can do it, it's not the best, but impact factor is a measurement of the average number of times that a journal's articles are cited. So in other words, if a journal is publishing um, complete and rigorous, rigorously reviewed papers that have very strong punch lines, that tends to have a very high impact factor because many people will cite that work. And so these online or predatory journals, they tend to have very low impact factors. Nobody tends to cite them. Yet they will be a place where you, the work is allegedly peer-reviewed and published. So today we'll talk about two papers that survived the peer review process and how the media, particularly the anti-GMO media, how they were interpreted and how they were spun to fit an agenda. And it's an amazing example of how the gold standard of peer review is really being exploited for political gains, either to denigrate good work or to promote as gospel work that is far from complete. So today's first interview is with Dr. Uh, or Professor John Pickett. He's from Rothamsted Research Institute in England. And the second part talks about a peer-reviewed paper that was part of a recent dust-up in systems biology uh, from an author named uh, Dr. Shiva Ayadurai that claims transgenic soy is full of formaldehyde. But first, let's talk about this work from Rothamsted Research. It's a story of an attempt to make aphid-resistant wheat, and the wheat would produce a compound called E-beta-farnesine, a natural volatile compound that comes from mint, and it was a simple test 
yet provoked a vicious response. Hey, what's going on in that field? Well, have you heard of GM wheat before? No. Okay, let me tell you a story. There's a place called Rothenstead Research. The new director is a big cheese from a biotech company. What you have just seen is the first open-air trial of a new aphid-resistant GM wheat. But aside from being weird, well, maybe it's okay. Well, there's been no proper safety research for GM wheat. GM food can have unintended results. So, has there been any proper public consultation about this around here? Nope. The biotech industry has a lot of influence with government and is looking to get GM into Europe once and for all. I don't like this. I have an allotment near here and I don't want GM in the food I grow. When it's out there, I guess there's no turning back. Mmm, very worrying for us farmers locally. You can't ever stop seed spreading. Well, in the US, farmers' yields haven't gone up with GM and they're using more chemicals than ever. Test found GM insecticides in the blood and umbilical cords of pregnant women. It's going to affect my business too. No one is going to want to eat this. And wheat's in everything. I can't stand here talking about this. We have to tell the rest of the town. I'm coming too. We need to do something. Let's go. Count me in. Me too. Yeah! And in a Frankenstein-like parade, uh, the cartoon in the characters in this cartoon in this particular depiction uh, storm off to trample the wheat and uh, uh, in an angry mob style uh, prepare to correct these scientists who they don't trust and what you just heard was from take the flower back and uh, using uh, rage against the machines take the power back but uh, take the flower back uh, used and this was all excerpted you could tell it was kind of cut into pieces for time but the idea was was to use fear, that it's untested, unintended consequences, that we just don't know. Um, uh, biotech conspiracy, um, pesticides in umbilical cords, all of the same tired, long debunkulated arguments that were made against biotechnology and its use in crops and crop uh, and food products. And this particular effort by Take the Flower Back gained considerable steam. And it actually started to pick up a little bit of interest in the wider scientific audience. People like me were noticing. Um, certainly, folks in the middle were starting to pay attention as it started to leak into mainstream news. And it was then when Rothamsted pulled a brilliant move. It was an appeal to the activists in vis visible public space. And it made scientists come off like humans. And it sounded something like this. We have heard that protesters are planning to attack our GMV trial site on the 27th of May. We ask them to please consider our message in the spirit of openness and dialogue. We know we cannot stop you taking the action you're planning to take. But please reconsider before it's too late and before several years worth of work to which we have been devoting our lives will be destroyed forever. We appeal to you as environmentalists. We agree that agriculture should work with nature rather than against it. And in fact, that is what we are trying to do with our plants. We have developed this new variety of wheat which doesn't require treatment with an insecticide and it uses a natural aphid repellent which already widely occurs in nature and is produced by more than 400 different plant species. We have engineered this into the wheat genome so that the wheat can do the same thing to defend itself. 
Are you really against this? Because it could have a lot of environmental benefit. Or is it simply because you distrust it because it's a GMO? The suggestion that our wheat is part cow is simply not true. The gene that we have added was synthetically made in the lab. And even with regular plant breeding, the wheat that we grow today has undergone many genetic changes. Our research is to shed light on questions about safety and usefulness of new varieties of staple food crops which we all depend on. We must stress that this trial is for research purposes only, for gathering knowledge. It is not being commercially grown. As activists, you may prefer never to know whether our new wheat variety would work, but we believe you're in the minority. You seem to think even before we've had a chance to test the trial, that RGM wheat variety is bad. But how can you know this? It's clearly not through scientific investigation because we've not even had any chance to do any tests yet. You state on your website that there's serious doubt that the aphid alarm pheromone being produced by this GM wheat is going to have any effect anyway. And you could very well be right. But if you trash the trial, none of us are ever going to know, are we? Do you really want that? Our work is publicly funded. We have pledged that our results will not be patented and will not be owned by any private company. If our wheat proves to be beneficial, we want it to be made available to farmers at minimum cost. If you destroy publicly funded research, you leave us in a situation where only big corporations can afford the drastic security measures required to continue biotechnology research and you therefore further promote a situation you say you are trying to avoid. Um, you may not know much about Rothamsted. You may not realise that we're the institute that has one of the longest running agricultural and environmental experiments in the world. Um, these are plots that have been receiving agricultural treatments and we've been measuring the ecological consequences of these since 1843. Now, some of these sensitive plots are very close to the GM trial site and we're really worried that people trampling these sites are going to compromise the ecological experiment that's been running for nearly 200 years. When you come to visit us on the 27th of May, please don't come in the spirit of destruction. Please come and engage in conversation with us. We would really like to show you our work and explain to you why we really think that it could benefit the environment in the future. As scientists, we know that we do not have all the answers. But that's why we need to conduct experiments. And that's why, please, we ask you not to destroy them. And this was really unusual, because this was an impassioned plea by scientists showing that they're human beings that are tied to causes that they share with the activists. The desire to make products that are more environmentally friendly, that plants that maybe could produce a product that would make them less vulnerable to, to insect damage, requiring, of course, less insecticides. It really sounds like a good move, and it also shows that these are a tapestry of different people who all have the same common goal of solving a problem with science. So the experiment went on. And um, the protest never came. Uh, nobody really trampled the experiment. It came and went without incident. There were some small uh, breaches of the perimeter and stuff that caused them to ramp up research and became very expensive. But, but the basic line is the experiment was allowed to continue. And what were the results? The results showed that in this field trial, 
the gene did not provide aphid resistance. Now, when you have a uh, experiment that moves from lab to field, it's a very complicated process that you uh, don't always get the result that you would like when you move an experiment from the lab to the field. Uh, you test the hypothesis. That's why this is science. In the field, you have weather, you have pests, stress, all kinds of environmental variables, and they really do change the way that your results come out. In the perfect world of the lab, it's always very different. And this is why field experiments require several years, multiple locations, in order to be publishable. So this experiment was a success. It was a solid experiment. It completed and answered the question. But how was it reported? Activist websites described it as a failure, a waste of money, a disaster that put pop plant populations and even humans at risk unnecessarily. But to the scientists, this was a success. A hypothesis was tested, a reliable result obtained. It was time, it was field data, um, you would test the hypothesis, and it gave solid data that the laboratory could then interpret. So the take-home message of this is that biotech critics you know, they all say that scientists are crooks, that we're all on the take, that we just are in this for the money, that we make up uh, any result we want in order to get more grant money. And this is a clear example of how that is not true, that the results that, although disappointing, are the results that came from a careful experiment. And now in this section of Talking Biotech, we have an opportunity to talk to Professor John Pickett from Rothamsted Research in the UK. Uh, Professor Pickett is a distinguished research fellow at Rothamsted Research, and he was the, uh, uh, the PI on the project uh, that we spoke about earlier, about the wheat and the aphid control that was threatened by um, Take the Flower Back. And we're very fortunate to discuss the results of the recent uh, publication with him today. So welcome very uh, welcome to the podcast, uh, Professor Pickett. Uh, great to be talking to you. So when we uh, so could you do it uh, start out by just telling us a little bit about the actual test, maybe going back to the original laboratory research and uh, what it was that you were seeking to test? Well, even back in the 80s, we had the idea that one day we would be able to genetically modify crop plants uh, to release a new kind of crop protection agent. Uh, and these would be based on pheromones, which are used by pests and, and of course, all organisms for communication purposes, and other chemicals which have a signaling role. But at the time, it was very difficult to do that. Uh, the technology wasn't really developed enough. Uh, as time progressed, though, and uh, uh, earlier on in the in the in the two thousands, uh, we managed to demonstrate in the model plant, uh, Rabidopsis thaliana, that we could modify the genetics to produce an aphid alarm pheromone, and that's really uh, the basis of the work that we've been doing in the crop plant since. And a lot of people, when they hear words like pheromone or hormone, they get a little concerned. But the approach that you're taking is attractive because it's a pheromone that would seem to specifically affect not only insects, but a specific kind of insect. Is that correct? Yeah, that's absolutely right. It's a very benign compound, which we can talk about. It's also um, produced uh, by aphids when they're attacked. Aphids reproduce uh, clonally in the summer 
uh, when they attack uh, their main hosts, which are, of course, our crops often, and uh, therefore they are, they are pests that we want to control. And um, so it's in their interest to warn of any kind of attack by a predator or a parasitoid. And when the uh, aphids that are not being attacked detect that signal, they scuttle off. In fact, in Japan, there's even a species that stands up and fights. Not only do the uh, pheromones uh, that the aphids produce uh, have this effect on themselves, but they also serve to attract beneficial insects that in turn attack the aphids. These are insects that feed on aphids like ladybirds and parasitic wasps that lay their eggs in the ladybird, in the aphids, and uh, so they're very pleased to find the aphids as a consequence of the pheromone. So we really thought that we would, able, we would be able to use the uh, pheromone both to repel the aphids, but also to attract the beneficial insects. And how are aphids controlled on wheat currently? And what? Oh, we use a range of insecticides. We, uh, we, we periodically uh, see so much selection for resistance that we have to change chemicals that we use. Recently, there have been some criticisms of the use of neonicotinoid insecticides because some people are worried that uh, they may harm uh, pollinators, honeybees particularly. We don't actually feel that is a real uh, risk, but nonetheless that has restricted their use in Europe and could it restrict their use in the US. So they're continually under pressure from registration or withdrawal of registration and continually under pressure because of the development of, of resistance. So we'd obviously like to turn the tables on the aphids and uh, use natural processes by which their populations are regulated uh, and uh, to try and provide alternative methods to pesticides uh, which, uh, as I said, exploit natural processes and which we could probably design so that we suffered less from resistance problems. Okay, and I'll ask the other question that really is on the minds of, of the critics is why not just spray the pheromone compound uh, on the plants and then you know use, the, use a plane to spray it and then that would scare them if it's away. Well, the problem is it's a very, very volatile, you know, evaporates very quickly uh, compound and it's also very, very unstable. So in daylight, the sun uh, and the... Uh, oxygen composition of the atmosphere uh, combine to decompose the, uh, the pheromone very, very quickly. There are some plants that can release the pheromone and imitate aphid attack. The relative of the commercial potato, Solanum bethultii, that can do this. And we, we showed that a long time ago in the process of our work. We also found that some essential oils from plants containing the uh, pheromone could be sprayed onto the field but the cost was enormous and the treatment lasted just for a few hours and so you would have to continually spray while the aphids were around. Um, it's uh, a very good idea to try and use the plant to make it because it makes a much more sustainable approach. You don't have to keep going over the field with, um, with uh, a vehicle using up diesel fuel and uh, contributing to uh, the carbon footprint of agriculture. So it's a much more sustainable approach to get the plant to do it itself. But there are problems in that the plant, when it produces e-betaphanosine, usually produces some other chemicals. The e-betaphanosine has to be produced pure as the pheromone. Other chemicals that plants make sort of tell the aphid that it's a plant trying to trick it. And this was very... 
uh, clever evolutionary uh, development on the part of Solan and Bethultii in which they didn't really uh, have these other chemicals there or were at least producing the pheromone away from them. So we had to engineer the genes for the production of the pheromone, E-beta-phanazine, uh, so that it didn't produce the other chemicals. That took uh, right until 2006 when we published in the National Academy of Sciences uh, journal, uh, Proceedings of the National Academy, uh, showing that in the model plant, Arabidopsis thaliana, with carefully engineered genes, we could actually produce the pheromone that aphids use as the alarm pheromone, pure enough to frighten aphids in the lab and to attract in beneficial insects. Yeah, I remember when that paper came out, and I thought this is so cool. And being able to teach plants to defend themselves using natural compounds is a really attractive area. And you mentioned this E-beta-farnesine. Could you tell us a little bit more about that particular compound and maybe its relative toxicity to humans and maybe a little bit about um, if how it's produced, like what are the genes that had to be engineered to metabolically well, what, are, what has been what has been metabolically engineered to be able to yeah, produce sure. beta farnesine? Well, uh, most organisms produce the precursor. That's the material that gives rise to this pheromonal compound, E-beta-farnesine. So you and I, um, pretty well all plants, um, bacteria, fungi, and that they all contain uh, phenazol diphosphate, and they make this to make into other things like carotenoids, steroids, and so on. Uh, and so the, the precursor, the starting material, is in most organisms. So what we need to do then is to add an E-beta-phanazine synthase gene, which will then make the E-beta-phanazine. Now, as I said, many, many plants already do this. And as a consequence, we consume quite a lot of E-beta-phanazine. I don't want to discriminate against people who don't like to drink alcohol, but beer drinkers certainly consume a lot of E-beta-phanazine. It's a very important flavour component of hops, in addition to the bitter acid resins, uh, and this flavour adds to the sort of uh, general um, flavouring effect that hops is providing to, to most beers. I always wondered why I never had aphids in my beer. So is E-beta-farnesine, or E-beta-farnesine as we say in the States, is this a uh, complicated molecule, or very simple? E-beta-farnesine uh, is a very simple compound. It's got 15 carbon atoms, but it's got a number of double bonds between the carbon atoms, and that's what makes it very, very unstable. We call it an isoprenoid, uh, because it's formed by the isoprenoid biosynthetic pathway, which builds up molecules of five carbon units. So there's obviously three in E-beta-phanazine. These are joined together already then in the precursor, phanazol diphosphate, so we have to get a synthase. And we used a synthase from uh, a mint plant, which we engineered to make very, very pure E-beta-phanazine so that the insects wouldn't suspect that it was actually a plant making the pheromone. We then had to transfer them initially to the uh, model plant Arabidopsis thaliana, the thalecress, and having been successful with that work, we then did the same thing for wheat. But wheat is a monocotyledonous plant and has a different codon usage. You know, the, the DNA um, message is, is different uh, in the monocotyledonous plants than the dicotyledonous plants. So we, we actually made a synthetic gene 
with appropriate promoter sequences and so on, so that it would work now in uh, wheat. And we chose um, an elite variety of wheat, or it was elite at the time. It's now been superseded by other varieties, but this variety was called Cadenza. And when we first inserted the gene into this variety, we actually didn't get any e-beta-phanosine. So we just put the, the synthase gene in, the synthase gene like we'd used in the Arabidopsis thaliana, but, uh, but modified to take the, um, the, the host plant of, of wheat. Now, when that didn't work, we thought that maybe there wasn't enough of the starting material, of the precursor, the farnesyl diphosphate. So we took the sequence of a phosphate of a, di of a farnesyl diphosphate gene, in fact, from a cow. Uh, we used the sequence in the cow because we didn't want the plant to recognize the sequence uh, as being a plant sequence, which it might then silence. Uh, plants have a, their own housekeeping system, and uh, they don't like things that, uh, that, uh, that aren't quite right. But if it was sufficiently different, we thought that uh, perhaps the plant wouldn't recognize it and wouldn't silence it. And that was indeed the case. So we now had... Uh, wheat plants with two genes in, the farnesyl diphosphate synthetic gene but with the sequence from the cow and the farnesine uh, synthase gene which was engineered from the wheat and then made, uh, from the mint plant rather, and then made into this, um, into this gene uh, that would work in the wheat. And that didn't work either in fact. Only when we included a sequence that gave um, and, and in turn, an amino acid sequence which loaded the uh, gene products into the plastid, the chloroplast of the wheat plant, did we get a product. In this case, we got um, some E-beta-farnesine when we had only the farnesine synthase, but when we got the extra precursor being formed by overexpressing the synthetic gene with the sequence from the cow for the farnesyl diphosphate, then we got more E-beta-farnesine. And we used both of those um, lines in our field trials, the high-producing E-beta-farnesine and the low-producing. And we compared that with the original uh, elite variety, Cadenza. So what we got was Cadenza as it was. We got Cadenza with a low level of E-beta-farnesine, the aphid alarm pheromone, and we got Cadenza with a high uh, release of E-beta-farnesine. And these all work brilliantly in the laboratory, as indeed had done the original model plant with the E-beta-farnesine production. And so you now have these uh, lines. You're ready to roll and take this to the field. And so when exactly did you move the, start the experiments in the field? And so how long did they go in the field before you started to uh, get results? And, and did you see some favorable results perhaps throughout the time course of the experiment? Or you know, how, what happened uh, that, that maybe didn't get into the paper? Simple observations, things like that. Well, we got these spectacular results in the laboratory, both of frightening cereal aphids away from the, uh, the, the, the cereal and, of course, uh, also of attracting in beneficial insects, specifically parasitic wasps, which lay their eggs in aphids. We've got these wonderful results in the laboratory and in semi-field simulated conditions um, uh, in a protected environment all by 2012. So we applied to the committee that recommends or not to the Ministry of Agriculture, uh, as it is, uh, though with a rather longer name, uh, and uh, 
uh, we applied to them for permission to do field trials with the two varieties uh, containing the e-beta-farnazine and the original variety, uh, Cadenza, as the control. Uh, and they recommended that providing we took on board a whole series of uh, precautions so that we didn't allow the genetics to escape, we didn't allow the genetically engineered wheat plants uh, to lose genetic material to the environment, that we could do the trial. So we were granted permission from the necessary ministry to do the trial, and we began in 2012 then. So we had a spring sowing of the three plants in replicated plots. Uh, we had another set of replicated plots in the spring of 2013 and in the autumn of 2013 we sowed an autumn sowing because that's the time when barley yellow dwarf virus is carried to cereal crops like wheat uh, by aphids. So we had three field trials. They were in, um, in, in replicates, so we had uh, plots interspersed in a stand of barley as a buffer and then with wheat round the outside um, and uh, a fence round the outside of all that uh, so that people didn't come in and move the genetic material around or damage the crops uh, uh, too easily for them. Uh, because that was all part of the uh, rules by which we, we were sanctioned to do the experiment. And we went out there from uh, as soon as the seedlings were coming up to measure the e-beta-farnazine coming off the plants. And sure enough, we got about 10 times more e-beta-farnazine from the double construct as with the single construct. Uh, and uh, obviously no e-beta-farnazine from the, the, the cadenza uh, itself. Uh, we started to count aphids and we started to count parasitic wasps. We did that all the way through to harvest. We couldn't tell any difference between the genetically engineered plants and the uh, plants that were the normal cadenza variety. We did lots of measurements of chlorophyll, uh, plant height, uh, uh, seal, seed yield, and so on. They looked perfectly normal, except that they had the genetics in them to make e-beta-farnazine. Uh, but sadly... We got no statistically significance in our reduction in uh, aphids. So there was no effect on the aphid population of the genetic engineering. We looked also, as I've said, at the parasitic wasp population and the number of aphids that had the eggs laid in them and the larvae of these wasps developing in them. And again, we could see no statistical significant difference in the... Um, the results from those analyses. So the work in the field was unsuccessful in terms of controlling aphids. But it was a very nice experiment because we released the e-beta-farnazine as we'd intended to, both from the single construct and at a higher level from the double construct. But somehow we had not tricked the aphids sufficiently into believing that there were aphids under attack and we hadn't in fact persuaded the parasitic wasps, that there uh, weren't a lot of aphids around that they should come and parasitize more than normal anyway. Um, we felt that uh, the experiment was successful because we'd done everything we'd intended, but we'd learned that we hadn't been sufficiently clever in capturing the population of parasitic wasps and frightening away the aphids. So we now have to look at the science and see where it should go for the future. 
Do you have a hypothesis about why the experiments didn't translate well from the laboratory to the field? The, the very low populations of aphids were partly uh, making it difficult to see an effect. A very low population of aphids uh, that year. We don't normally have a very high population. In fact, some crops like sugar beet, you're recommended to spray an insecticide if you have one aphid uh, per four plants. So, you know, it is quite a sensitive uh, pest that we have here, but to frighten it and see it being frightened, we really need a bigger population. But more particularly, we think that the parasitic wasp population was insufficiently large to get a good effect. And so we're hoping to do some further field trials with the same constructs, but in, in locally appropriate varieties of wheat in the United States. And I'm in the process of communicating with various American colleagues to try and do that, where we have higher populations of aphids. Uh, and that means higher populations of beneficial insects. Now, with the aphids themselves, we think that we failed to trick them because we didn't provide a sudden burst of the pheromone. The pheromone was produced constitutively over the wheat plants, and we think that that gave a kind of gradual effect uh, of the aphids perceiving the pheromone. What we really need is a burst of activity from the pheromone and we think we might be able to achieve this by using promoter sequences for the genetics that instead of switching the genes on constitutively all the time we'll switch the genes on when the aphids just get in there and attack the plant and we actually have some genes that are upregulated we say when aphids attack the plant in fact one of the genes in wheat for the biosynthesis of the farnesyl diphosphate, the precursor, is in fact upregulated rapidly uh, in leaves of wheat when attacked by aphids. So that will be a target for the future. And we'll do all that work in the laboratory and we'll make sure it all works to our best of laboratory practice uh, again before we go out with this new system which will respond to the aphid attack rather than as having it there already. In the long term, it's a better approach, in fact. We look at this and say, this is great. It, it answered the question. And tried, trying to translate an experiment from field to lab, or laboratory to field is always very challenging. And yet in the media, when you, especially in kind of the anti-GMO anti activist media, we saw a lot of this was a resounding failure, a waste of money, um, all this kind of rhetoric. And how do you, how do you feel about that? I'm, I know that I'm, I look at this and go, this is great because it's, a, it's an experiment that gave us the answer. And uh, maybe it wasn't the answer that we would have liked to have found, but certainly was a very reliable answer. And, and that's the point of doing the experiment. Yes, uh, we test hypotheses. We advance a hypothesis and then we test it. And, and it can be proved false or it can be proved uh, true. Uh, and obviously we go forward depending on which way around it is. And in terms of scientific development, um, you probably learn more by a hypothesis initially testing false. Uh, and that's certainly the case here. We now know that we can't use constitutive expression uh, and that means we have to try harder to get something that's more appropriate. And in the long term would be, in fact, by definition of not being constitutive, would be uh, by being uh, associated with the actual pest uh, much more sustainable. So I, I think that's that's good. Of course, we're disappointed that we haven't got an answer uh, to controlling pests 
like aphids um, sooner. But uh, and certainly if it had worked, we would have probably uh, broken out the, the champagne and, 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 uh, and soft drinks for those who, who don't consume alcohol. But um, as it was, we were satisfied that we had a very sound scientific publication of value to the scientific community, because the world now knows that it's not an easy matter to do this. The cost for the experiment was a normal cost for a peer reviewed you know, that is a, an experiment that's sanctioned by your peers as scientists. Uh, so it was a normal cost there. But we had additional costs for security. Uh, first of all, to satisfy the needs of the committee that allows um, experimental release of genetically engineered material into the environment. So it didn't get further than the experimental fields that we were using. Uh, but also because people threatened to destroy the crop. Uh, and so those people caused the bigger expense whilst we tested a hypothesis that I think really um, most people would like to see tested. I, I think although not everybody may yet relish the idea of eating genetically engineered food in Europe, I think certainly in the United Kingdom people really want to see the experiments done so we can really see what possible value is here. And I remember that back in, it was May of uh, 2012 that they had planned, the group called Take the Flower Back was poised to destroy the fields uh, at Rothamsted uh, Research. And it was really uh, an interesting watershed for us as scientists because uh, one of the things that your group did that was really different was come out in a YouTube appeal and said, we're scientists, please don't destroy our experiment. And it was really kind of revolutionary because I think the tendency would have been build a higher fence or call in security or whatever. And so why did you choose that approach of communication rather than other approaches to defend the experiment? Well, you know, we do work for the public and taxpayers' money goes to favor and, uh, and fund our research, providing it's, uh, it's deemed to be quality research by the, uh, the peer review process and the research council that funded the work. Um, so we do really feel we ought to engage with the public. And I think in the early days of GM, we didn't really do that. Um, you know, if somebody said, well, I don't like the idea of eating genes, then scientists were quick to point out uh, how silly that statement was because, of course, you know, all living things uh, are, 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 are full of genes and operate by them. Um, so we really felt that we ought to engage. We also sought advice from people, and uh, uh, one uh, very helpful person was Mark Linus, who had himself been uh, somebody trying to destroy uh, GM crops in the past and realized that there was some potentially valuable science here. And, and I think he felt that uh, the public at large didn't really understand what we're doing, saw it as some kind of multinational plot, um, and yet there were various opportunities if we could really redeem them. And that's really what we're in the process of. And so to bring more of the public with us was our main aim. Indeed, initially, uh, we had a rather rough time from the media and the public at large. I was shouted down on a major television news program on a Saturday night uh, by people who were opposed to the experiment. I had to... Uh, remain quiet even though that wouldn't normally be my 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 natural characteristic because they were just sat shouting so loudly i couldn't make a an intelligible argument but um 
when we started to engage using the public uh, and personal media uh, with a lot more people, and particularly the early career scientists on the project, colleagues like Toby Bruce and uh, Gia Aradotir, then we started to feel that people were sympathising with the need for the experiments to be done, as I said, even though they might not yet be in a situation where they're keen to eat the food. I think it's necessary really to show the value of the work before people will be really uh, accepting this as a major intervention in food production. But to show the value of it, you've got to do experiments, and they won't all work. Indeed, beyond the GM area, most field experiments don't work initially. Indeed, many, many experiments that we do don't work generally. That's how science moves forward. And, uh, and the hypothesis testing process has to be applied to this, even though it's an emotive issue currently. And, and critics are always point out, they'll say, well, you scientists, you know, you're all paid by companies to do experiments and get exactly the answers the companies want. And I think that's why this is such, an, uh, such a great example, is that it really to- tells us that we do the experiment and it tells us that we need to rethink it, that we need to think a little harder about the strategy, that we need to uh, consider you know, more variables. And that's, what's, that's what research in science is all about. It's a way of us taking baby steps. And uh, Wayne Gretzky, who played hockey over here, he always said, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. And I think this is a great example of how you're, you're testing the hypothesis. And, uh, and I'm, I'm excited to hear that there's more coming. And uh, have you heard anything else back from Take the Flower Back or similar activists with uh, respect towards... No, we've not really heard very much. I mean, we're very happy to engage with anybody who's got a concern. Um, the, uh, the, uh, the fact that we used the sequence for the Farnesyl diphosphate gene from the cow was quite amusing because the take uh, the flower back people produced a cartoon which comprised a loaf of bread with a cow's head uh, and that was in itself very amusing but um, as the media became much more interested in what we were doing rather than giving voice to people who were opposed to it uh, I spent some time with um, a radio program called the Life Scientific, which is introduced by a scientific uh, presenter, uh, Jim Al-Khalili. And he actually asked me, you know, did we have a cow gene in the wheat and was there a piece of a cow in there as a consequence? And I was able to explain in quite a few minutes on primetime radio uh, in the UK uh, that really it was a sequence of a gene uh, that we had. Uh, and that was really information. It wasn't a piece of a cow, so it wouldn't uh, give anybody any problem. If they eventually this gave rise to an edible product, they wouldn't need to worry that they were they were consuming meat if that was, was against their, their choice. Um, but I think engaging with people who have very strong feelings is, is, is also a good idea, as well as those people who perhaps are just worried. Uh, because I think, you know, it, it allows us to deal with fears that are underexpressed and in fact uh, I'm a fellow of the Royal Society our uh, uh, highest uh, scientific academy and we've been doing a, a, a poll of what people think or know about GM and genetics generally trying to formulate answers to questions that people might not even have voiced very loudly but nonetheless harbour them and have them as, as a worry uh, and I think that uh, 
Um, it all comes down in the end to risk assessment. People are very, very happy to take pharmaceutical drugs with some potential side effects if it's uh, likely that they can be cured of a serious problem. And for food um, production, particularly sustainable food production, in the face of climate change uh, and very rapidly rising global populations, we're going to have to do new technology. We're going to have to deliver much more of it via the seed and that means we're going to have to explore other approaches to pest control because they are competing with us for our food. We're going to have to explore other methods of pest control beyond just uh, killing the insect with broad-spectrum eradicant uh, synthetic insecticides. And that's what was so excited about, exciting about this particular approach. To me, it satisfies all of the major groups that when I'm talking to activists or people who disagree, here you have a, an, a, um, a government research laboratory, not a big company, that's generating a product that uh, is better for the environment. It's better for consumers because there's no residues. It's better for farmers because it saves them money. They don't have to apply a chemical. And it also would have tremendous dividends in the developing world where you don't have broad-spectrum insecticides. And this seemed like a win-win-win. And I think when your YouTube video came out and people started to pay attention and say, look, these are you know four or five human beings that are doing this experiment and very likable people who are working on something that satisfies all of the areas I care about, about farmers, consumers, the environment, and the needy. And that communication effort, I think, will go down as a real watershed point in genetic engineering history because it really reminded us that there's something much bigger here than BT and uh, herbicide resistance. And so that w it really was a really great move. I think that uh, it certainly is a way of capturing people's desire to have more natural processes involved in food production. And uh, uh, in Africa, in sub-Saharan Africa, we have a very big program based on using similar kinds of signal chemicals. They're not actually pheromones, they're chemicals that are produced when plant plants are damaged. A damaged maize plant or a sorghum plant produces signals that repel incoming herbivorous insects. Uh, who don't want to get onto an over-colonized host plant uh, and also attracting in beneficial insects. We've been able to exploit that in developing uh, countries, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, by companion planting, by growing into crops which release these chemicals already and, and thereby protect the maize and the sorghum that they're uh, grown in between the rows of. Um, now, it's fine in Africa, in the regions where we work, there are smallholder farmers with a high density of people on the land, very, very small packages of land. They must intensify their food production, but they don't have insecticides, fertilizer, or resources with which to buy seed. So this companion planting, delivery of pest control, we also use legumes, so we deliver fertilizer as well. Um, that is working really very, very well. But to do the same kind of thing in the north, we obviously have to think of something that works with a very, very much lower uh, labour force on the land. So in some ways, uh, the smallholder farmers in sub-Saharan Africa are showing the way uh, and uh, showing the way to new kinds of genetics that we may also apply uh, as we develop GM 
for northern food production with um, uh, industrial agriculture. I mean, in the end, of course, it has to be a commercial product. That's how we operate in the north. Uh, but in sub-Saharan Africa, at the moment, we are seeing that the technology can be transferred from farmer to farmer and that the farmers themselves can produce the seed material and the planting material. All the plants that we're using as companion crops are grown as perennials. So once they've established the growth, they can continually grow the uh, annual um, annual cereal crop by re-sowing it, whereas the companion plants that protect the crops and provide the nutrition don't need to be um, added to the system. It's a, a, a once-for-all uh, uh, input, a very sustainable approach. Now, we'd like to imitate that much more in the north then, uh, but we would need the tools of GM to do this, and that's really what we're experimenting on. In fact, some other work will involve the genetic transfer of some of the genes that we're finding in the open pollinated varieties of maize. That's the varieties of maize where the farmer saves the seed. Uh, and that kind of lesson from Africa, uh, which is quite a new phenomenon, usually it's the other way around, but we're, we're actually learning from the plants that we've got in Africa doing the companion cropping, uh, what new genes we might target for the next uh, round after we've finished our studies on the aphid alarm firm, which we hope will be, in the next phase, successful. Okay, so th I think we'll wrap it up about here. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Professor John Pickett. Um, here, he's a Distinguished Research Fellow at Rothamsted Research in the UK. Thank you so much for joining us on Talking Biotech. Thank you, Kevin. I really enjoyed the discussion. Yeah, thank you. And please keep us posted in the future as breakthroughs occur, because I think you're on the right track. I'm really excited about the future of the project and look forward to hearing more. Hi, Talking Biotecher. This is Vern Blathek of the Vern Blathek Science Power Hour. While on hiatus from my podcast, I'm promoting the Talking Biotech podcast. So what can you do to help us spread the message? Well, what you can do is tell others, tell a friend, tell someone you don't like, scratch Talking Biotech podcast into a bathroom wall at Chipotle, most of all, you can write a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Spread the word. Spread the word on Twitter. Take other steps to tell others that you found something exciting here. The bottom line is, this is all about how science can help people and move innovation to application with good communication. Most of all, here's an opportunity to share the Talking Biotech podcast with a larger audience and helping people see how science can bring us new and exciting opportunities to help people, the environment, the farmers, and most of all, the needy. I'm Vern Blathek, and back to Talking Biotech. Wow, thank you to Vern Blazek for doing the voiceovers here at uh, Talking Biotech. Uh, somebody with some real pipes for this kind of work versus my nasally drone, but there's Vern. Uh, so the second part of uh, Talking Biotech today, I wanted to discuss another paper. So first we talked about the paper that showed that the use of the E-beta-farnesine generating uh, gene in wheat did not repel the aphid or call in the wasps like the uh, authors had hypothesized. And this was 
discussed as a major failure in the activist press, although it was a resounding success that answered the question. On the other hand, a rather dubious paper came out two weeks ago, several weeks ago, uh, about formaldehyde in your soybeans. Now, of course, this was only GMO soybeans, and they were called GMO soybeans, not uh, transgenic, and that automatically sets off my alarm bells because it says they're using a familiar language that people uh, relate to because there's a message that they're trying to get out, perhaps an agenda that's being driven. And so when I looked at the work that came out a few weeks ago, um, the work was actually published in a journal called Agricultural Sciences. Uh, Agricultural Sciences, uh, although being a journal which has had some good work in there, uh, is published by Scientific Research, which if they have to tell you it's scientific research, it might not be. Uh, We know that this is a publisher with a history of perhaps having predatory inclinations and they are listed as a as a predatory publisher but the title of the paper was do gmos accumulate formaldehyde and disrupt molecular systems equilibria a systems biology approach may provide answers and the work is written by shiva ayadurai and prabhakar dinoikar and um uh, both of these authors were associated with something called the systems biology group at the in International Center for Integrative Systems in Cambridge, Mass. So there's lots of us that lots of things we could look at there. It turns out that this uh, organization isn't really uh, much of a scientific organization. It's hard to say exactly what it is, but they do have a nice meditation room and uh, and a rooftop organic garden. So you start to see a little bit of a pattern here as to uh, some of the agenda of the folks involved. So what they did was use a systems biology approach. So what's a systems biology approach? Systems biology means uh, a computational method of taking many different data sets and integrating those data sets into a model that weights different variables so that you get a predictive outcome. Meaning that if you're curious about genes that are associated with flowering, you might study the way flowering occurs in response to different kinds of light, different kinds of temperatures, different genes and genetic backgrounds that would say these other genes may be involved in the process, at which point scientists would go back to the lab and test, are those genes actually contributing to the process of flowering? Now what uh, Ayadurai and Dianakar did was they proposed a model that the paper itself is clunky as all heck. I couldn't believe getting through this thing. I mean, it was it was a real poorly written um, and just a disorganized mess. Um, it was uh, submitted and accepted in an extremely short time, which also should be another red flag, because just for me to look at this paper completely and clearly um, all the way through uh, took a fair amount of time. So when you look at, uh, at this work, it comes to a conclusion using a computational prediction that GM plants have um, formaldehyde levels that are high and uh, low levels of something called glutathione. And glutathione is a necessary, um, uh, not just like uh, optional, but a necessary um, antioxidant in plant biology. And when I look at the actual numbers in this paper, you look at the uh, some of the metrics around the 
uh, publication. It was accepted on or it was submitted on uh, June 17th and accepted on July 7th. And I know that there's no turnaround that I've ever experienced in publication that's this fast. So it makes me a little suspicious, especially in a large clunky paper like this. But let's go back to this and think about it as scientists and not think about the insufficiencies in the process. When you make a computational prediction, you then test if that prediction holds true. And that's really what you do to publish the kind of work that like a systems biology approach. You've made a predicted model, predictive model, made a prediction, now test to see if that prediction is true. And the authors say that they can't do this for several reasons that are just hand-waving. Um, you could test this. And so why not actually measure those formaldehyde levels? Well, the uh, Ayadurai and others are out talking about this as, yes, the formaldehyde is there. It's definitively there. We need to change the system of evaluation because of the presence of this dangerous chemical in our, in our food. Now, you may recall years ago when they started to talk about why the beer companies were so awful, that there was embalming fluid used in the production of things like Budweiser. And so formaldehyde, it comes up all the time. It's one of the many natural metabolites in plants and animals that has some other uh, negative connotation and can invoke social fear. So when you see formaldehyde, it's always good for you to think, okay, who's pulling my leg here? So the authors never measured formaldehyde levels. They don't know if there's actually formaldehyde there. They just came up with a computer prediction that says that it might be. Now, why would they be so excited about this? Well, turns out Ayadurai has been communing with many different anti-biotech folks. Uh, he was recently shown with Neil Young and um, with um, others, uh, the uh, governor of Vermont who is an organic gardener who uh, doesn't like anything about transgenic crops or biotechnology. Um, he's had some other dubious relationships and his wife happens to be Fran Drescher, uh, you might know for, as an actress, um, Bobby Fleckman from This Is Spinal Tap. Uh, Fran is an outspoken anti-GMO activist. Yeah, keep the biotech stuff out of my phone. Yeah. <laughs> I can hear it already. So she, um, uh, so who knows? Apparently there's lots of ideas about potential conflicts of interest that would maybe get somebody to get a little bit excited about a decision or an outcome that was not a hard outcome, but was a computational prediction from what could be a very flimsy computational approach. Yet the anti-GMO literature has gone crazy. The websites show a killer diller, GMO soy makes formaldehyde in our gut. Another one says GMO soy accumulates carcinogenic formaldehyde, game-changing study. Um, and all of these declarations say that something was found that wasn't. Claiming a great success where none has been demonstrated. So in complete opposition to the earlier study of the wheat and the e-beta farnesine, where a good study was deemed as flawed, here a deeply flawed study is deemed as wonderful and gospel and conclusive. And this just is a really important reminder to how we interpret science and how science is being manipulated to attempt to change 
the folks who are sitting in the middle. Uh, Certainly, the declaration of proof of formaldehyde in your food is something that would turn off mothers, especially those feeding soy-based products to their children. And this is the point. So what do we do as scientists? Well, uh, in my tradition of holding people to their statements is let's do the objective test. And I reached out to Ayadurai and said we could do this experiment. Uh, we have facilities at University of Florida where um, one of my collaborators has an LCMS in his office with lots of good HPLC. It would be possible to measure formaldehyde levels in GM and non-GM soy and come up with a conclusive finding to either support or not support Ayadurai's computational prediction. I've gone so far as to now request a number of samples. So I have a number of GM and non-GM isolines, so the same genetic background but without the transgene, coming to me uh, in the next week or two. And we're also going to get samples from farmers all over the U.S. So if you have some soybeans left over, say, uh, you know, a pound, maybe two pounds of soy, kilogram of soy if you're in Canada, uh, send it down to me. And uh, the, the seed companies don't care. This is perfectly fine with them. I've spoken with them. We'll get those seeds. And under my academic research license, would be able to do, do whatever experiments I wanted to do. And we will determine the formaldehyde and glutathione levels in these seeds. The actual analysis will be done in a blinded fashion where materials will be supplied to University of Minnesota's core lab where they'll analyze free formaldehyde. And this is the other aspect of this is that measuring formaldehyde, you're not just looking for the free compound, because it's a small compound, um, but also the way in which formaldehyde moves in the cell or where it, the way it's dealt with in the cell that typically you'll see other compounds formulated So it's free formaldehyde as well as formulation of other proteins or other compounds. And this will help tell us whether or not that formaldehyde is, uh, if it was there, if it was ending up in other potential contexts where it may not be easily detected as a free formaldehyde species. Um, That would eliminate one of the criticisms that would come back if the GM and other were equivalent. So we'll do a number of analyses or have these done so that it's independent and clear. And uh, the other experiments, the glutathione levels, will be measured probably by undergraduate students in high schools here in Gainesville, Florida, because we have some kits that will be used to determine those levels. And we will do all the experiments on uh, open uh, format. We'll make all data accessible. We'll videotape the student experiments so that that we can share them on YouTube with the idea of being full transparency. Now, I've offered Ayadurai um, the opportunity to participate in these experiments, and I was glad to uh, offer him authorship and say, let's do it. And when it shows that there's lots of formaldehyde, you'll have an excellent paper, probably in our marquee journal, showing that your prediction is, in fact, holding. But I haven't heard anything. He's neglected to answer my, uh, my, my offer. And it reminds me of a number of other cases, such as the Moms Across America, the Don Hubers, who make outlandish claims, but when we stand to ask them to now work with us in the spirit of collaboration and shine the light of science on their claim, that they disappear. This should speak very strongly about the tenacity of their desire to find the truth.
The paper about formaldehyde in soybeans only stands as long as science fails to do the test. And that's why we're doing it. I'm paying for this 100% personally. If it gets expensive, I may have to go to a Kickstarter. But for now, we are going to use the best validation tools to test the hypothesis he felt was not important enough to test before going out and claiming it to be true. So there you have it, another episode of Talking Biotech, uh, the review of two important studies, one of which had an, a result that was negative, yet extremely important, and a total success, yet was touted as a miserable failure. On the other hand, we had a computational simulation that seems to report something that may or may not be there, isn't likely to be there because no one else has ever detected it, but they don't worry about that. And this report, although published, should not have been published. It doesn't meet the rigorous review criteria of actual experimental validation, explaining why it's in a poor quality journal. But yet, this paper is out being touted as definitive and conclusive evidence that should change public policy and should change the way we uh, think about biotechnology as it applies to crop plants. Two really interesting oppositional examples of how the media is spun to meet a political gain around science and how our peer-reviewed literature is being uh, exploited to achieve political ends. So that's it for today for Talking Biotech. Uh, my name is Kevin Fulta, and I really do thank you for listening to us here on Talking Biotech. Please keep sending your questions. Send your suggestions. If you're someone who would like to be interviewed, please let me know as soon as possible. And uh, tell a friend about this podcast. Our numbers are growing and looking really good. Um, do a review on iTunes. That really would help push this thing up higher in the rankings and make it more accessible to more people because I think we're doing a good thing here about illuminating the importance of this science for helping farmers, helping consumers, helping the needy, and doing something that can help the environment. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Please send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review on iTunes and recommend this podcast to a friend. More downloads and reviews raise the visibility of this podcast and help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at collabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.